Thank you, guys. Who then shall fall on bended knee, all creatures of our God and King? That's a good line to remember. Uh, welcome, everybody. It's uh, good to have you all at GBC. I, we had a great time away for Thanksgiving, but also really glad to be back. And um, let me pray. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 9. It's, it's an interesting passage. It did not um, totally blow me away when I was first reading it, and the more I read it, the, the more I fell in love with this chapter. So I'm excited to share about it with you. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of every one of our praises and more than we can even muster in our finite ability to understand you. And so God, I pray that you would open our, our minds and our souls to the wonders of your glory today. I pray that we would, as we look at Joshua chapter 9 and see it in the context of all of Scripture, that we would that we would understand your benevolence, uh, your graciousness, your omnipotence, uh, your justice, all of these things, Father. Um, forgive us when we think we have them figured out and uh, just ask that we would humbly sit under your authority today. Uh, we love you. We pray your spirit would move in this time to bring us to places of blessed conviction. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago on our staff retreat, we went out to hunt Texas, and we're all at late night playing all these board games, saboteur, things like this. And I left a little bit early, and I went into Daniel Ernest's bedroom, uh, the room that he was staying in, and he was in a queen-size bed that's right up against a wall, and I slid in between the bed and the wall, and I waited. And I waited for like 30 minutes. He, he played a couple of games of saboteur. I just, I, I waited silently in the dark. And, and I heard finally 30 minutes later that he, he came in and, you know, he brushed his teeth and, and got, you know, all ready for bed in his pajamas. He wears animals. Y'all might have not have known that. Um, but he gets in bed and, and I'm waiting. And he's, he's checking emails and texts and he's, he's looking at ESPN app to, to see who won what games, and I waited. I waited and I waited. Finally, you, you can tell that the light of his mobile phone goes off, and he, I hear him put it on the bedside table, and, and I still waited. I waited another like five or ten minutes. Y'all might or might not know this, but Daniel is fairly tightly wound, and so it, it takes him a while to settle into, into bed, and, and so I waited. I waited. It got to be about 10 minutes after he turned everything off, and I, I could hear him breathing deeper. And I knew at that point that it was my time to shine. <laughs> I, I reached my hand up from the side of the bed slowly. He could not see it. It was totally dark. And I just, with some authority and force, brought it down right on his chest like this. I don't know if y'all have ever seen, or if you can remember this, if you're old enough to remember it, but, but Garfield the cat sometimes would be asleep, and, and Opie the dog would come up and bark behind him, and Garfield would be clawing the roof. That's what we got. That's exactly what we got. Nothing for me is more satisfying than a ruse. So, some sort of trick, some sort of deception, some, some sort of getting over on someone. I, I love bow hunting because I feel sneaky. I mean, like, that's probably not good for a pastor to admit, but 
but I love a good ruse. And I'll tell you, chapter nine of Joshua has a ruse. And, and I, you might hate this chapter. I love this chapter. Let's, let's set up the scene, chapter nine of Joshua, verses one and two. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, now that, that is west of the Jordan River. The Jordan River um, connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So everything west of the Jordan River, which is the promised land, of all the kings who were beyond or to the west of the Jordan River in the hill country and in the lowlands and all along the great sea toward Lebanon, which is the Mediterranean. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, when they heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Okay, so what we know right away is that Joshua and Israel that he is leading and their God are, are making a splash. Okay, like, like everyone, all the ites understand that something is going on and, and it, it garners their attention and it's, it's been something of a show of force. They they understand all the ites realize that God, their God, Yahweh, delivered Israel from captivity 40 years earlier from Egypt. And Egypt is giant at that point. So like that, that is worthy of attention. And they, they also understand that Israel had great victories over stronger opponents on the east side of the Jordan as they moved west and uh, to the Jordan. They also understand that Israel has now had victories over Jericho and I. And, and so that they understand that Israel and their God is doing something. And so they decide to band together and fight against that God. Now, doesn't that seem ridiculous? Like, think about that. Like, why would they fight against a God who parts a Red Sea? Why would they fight against a God who, who stops the Jordan River when the Jordan River is at flood stage? Why would they fight against a God and a nation under his authority that are beating greater opponents like, like it's nothing? Why would they stop to fight or why would they band together to fight against a God who can go up against a walled city, a giant walled city like Jericho, and the wall collapses all at once like nothing. And they band together to fight. The enemies dig in. That, that to me seemed ridiculous. Like I'm like, why don't you run? Why, do something other than band together to fight. It seemed crazy. The only crazier thing than resisting an omnipotent God is resisting a gracious God. You get that, right? I mean, I can, I can look at Joshua chapter 9 and I can look at all the ites and I'm like, you guys are idiots. But, but then I, I start to realize, wait a second. We know more about this God than they knew about this God. We know, for instance, that this God who is really into righteousness and justice and, and all of the things that are, are bringing 
destruction on, on these sinful Canaanites, we also understand that that is the God who sent Jesus Christ to die a sinner's death on a cross so, so that we might receive his unconditional love, not because we've earned it, not because we've done anything to deserve it, none of that. No, we have received his unconditional love because Jesus, his son, who is without sin, became sin, took the consequence of sin so that we might enjoy the unconditional love and the righteousness of God imputed upon us. And I rebel against that God. That's, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a Christian. And I rebel against that God. So that the ites rebelled and, and fought against a God who is omnipotent. That seems crazy. But, but that me, a Christian, would rebel against God's benevolence against his graciousness, that, that me and my flesh want to go my own way instead of wanting to go his way. That's crazy. That's, that's the conviction I have today. Like, I can look at the ites and go, y'all are nuts to fight against that God. I fight against that God. I do. I absolutely do. God offers a way of salvation that is fully assured by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we hate him for it. We rebel against him. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And this is the verdict. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. That's not just the people out there. When I sin, that's me. That's me. That's you. That's you. Instead of digging in to fight, like all the other ites, the Gibeonites took a different approach. Verses 3 through 15. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all the provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's what the Gibeonites are, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That's in this context to the east of the Jordan. To Shihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provision in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. 
but now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have just burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their possession, and by that it means so that the Israelite men took some of the Gibeonites' provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So everybody else digs into fight, and that's absurd, but it's no more absurd than when we rebel against God, but everyone else digs in to fight, the Gibeonites took a different approach. They, they took the ruse route. It's wrong. They, they told a lie. That's a sin. I'm not going to lie. I kind of like it. I kind of like it because I love a good ruse. And that probably shows that I'm a sinner just like they are, but it's a different route. Here's something to consider. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20 says Israel can make treaties with far distant countries. So far different nations. Deuteronomy chapter 20, Israel can make treaties with those distant nations. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2 says no treaties with the Canaanites. So you can make treaties with people way out there, but the people who live in Canaan, which is the promised land, You can't make treaties with them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. So one verse after saying no treaties with the Canaanites, Deuteronomy 7, 3 says why. And I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4, just so you can understand this whole progression. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So Israel is not in the land yet. God is talking to Moses. He's like, here's how it's going to go down. When you get into the land and and God clears away many nations before you, the, Hivot, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. They can beat you up when he does that. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Now, we talked about that a couple of days ago. This is you kill them all. And it's hard, but I promise you, if you understood what the Canaanites were really into, you'd be like, okay, I get it. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Verse 3 explains why. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Okay, now that's actually kind of important. Israelite boys marrying Canaanite girls seems to be the problem that God is solving for. Okay, like he doesn't want that. Now, the reason he doesn't want it isn't because he hates the Canaanites. Jesus is going to come to save Canaanite descendants. He's going to come and save Muslims. He's going to come and save Hindus. He's going to come and and save all sorts of people who were rebelling in similar manners. So it's not that God hates the people. What God hates is syncretism, 
What God hates is this idea that we're going to take a little bit of, of Yahweh worship and blend it with some sort of pagan worship. We're going to take a, a little bit of biblical ethic and merge it with, with pagan ethic, and, and we're going to get this amalgamation of nothing. What God hates is false religion. It's not that he hates the Canaanites. He does hate their sin. He hates syncretism, and he knows that that is going to be a big problem. Something else to consider. I don't know where I stand on this. I'm just giving you the other option. There is some debate about whether the Gibeonites had a working knowledge of Deuteronomy. Did they know that chapter 7 said no covenants with the Canaanites, but chapter 20 said covenants with far distant people? It's debatable. Like, I don't know how they would know it. It's, it's kind of the Jews' law. Why do the Gibeonites know that? So what might else be going on here is this. They could have said, we've come from a great distance, not because they knew the difference between Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. They could have said, we come from a great distance to play on Israel's religious pride. It goes like this. Hey, we've come a really long way because we've heard your God is amazing. And we've heard what amazing things you've done with the power of your God. And, and we want to be on your team because you're so great. They're playing on Israel's religious pride. Religious pride is still pride. You got to be aware of that. It's, it's an insidious type of pride because it's a pride you can baptize. It's a pride you can baptize and that way you don't have to deal with it. It happens all the time today. Like People are like, you know, things at Grace Bible Church are really going well. Like Y'all are really into disciple making. Disciple making is great and, and you're great. And you're like, yeah, we are great. God's doing all sorts of stuff. Too bad you're not here. Man, we got it all figured out. Happens all the time. You know, this ministry that I'm involved with, it, it's, it's going so well, everyone is talking about it. You start to get puffed up. It starts to become something you, you justify. Like, hey, this is, we're giving credit to God. You're also taking credit for you. But, but we think, and pastors do this, you know what? God's at work. I need to expand my platform. That's, uh, you hear it all the time. It's, it's platform. I, I got to expand my platform because of what God is doing. But uh, really, like, the Instagram's in your name. You know what I mean? I'll give you an example of this. A year or two ago, Daniel Ernest was in San Antonio, and he bumped into somebody. I, I can't even remember how. I, I should have asked him before the service. But he, he bumped into someone, and Daniel said, oh, you know, I work at Grace Bible Church in Houston, Texas. And, and the guy says, GBC? I've heard about GBC. GBC is, is really big on disciple-making, right? Daniel told me this, and I was like, really? <laughs> that means we're regionally famous. Not nationally famous. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm not 
that prideful, but we're regionally famous. Somebody from outside the loop being 6'10", not really even like the beltway, somebody's heard of us. And, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking about writing a book. I mean, like, I, I'm like, <laughs> we got to get the word out. This is going to be great. And I start, I, I mean, I don't just like think about writing a book. I do an outline for a book. I do. I've got it somewhere. I have no idea where. I, I spent like two hours writing the outline for a book and I'm, I'm looking at it and my first look at the outline is, I got to get this stuff out. And then I, I look at it again and I'm like, I think the whole book would be like 27, 28 pages. <laughs> It'd be more like a booklet. Maybe even that's too strong. It'd be like a pamphlet. And that would be with a lot of stories, honestly. <laughs> like, it'd be a lot of filler stuff. And so I kind of scrapped the book idea. There's better ways for me to spend my time. Nobody's looking for a book. <laughs> Not from me. Religious pride, it's pretty insidious. It's pretty insidious. You, you got to be careful. It's not just pastors. It's all of us. In whatever ministry we're in, if it's going well, I promise that's something you're susceptible to and you need to fight against. Verse 14 of Joshua 9 is the real crux of the problem. Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions. The men of Israel took some of the Gibeonites' provision but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They took provision from the, Gide the Gibeonites, and that's kind of part of the practice of ratifying a covenant. Like they, they break bread together, and it's, it's how you ratify a covenant. But in doing so, they didn't seek counsel from the Lord. They didn't seek counsel from the Lord. I thought a lot about how to encourage Grace Bible Church to seek counsel from the Lord. And I think, if I'm being really honest, some of the challenge of that is that there's not a formula. Like, I, I wish there was a formula. It's hard to seek counsel from the Lord because sometimes we've sought counsel from the Lord, and if we're being really honest, we didn't feel like the Lord answered. Lord, what do I do? And like it's silent. And so the next time you're like, well, I tried that. He didn't say anything. And so I want to be careful here. I think that we should always pray for wisdom. I don't think that's ever wrong. I think we should read scripture consistently, not occasionally, consistently. I think we should be people of the book. I think we should seek counsel from wise men and women who we respect within the body of Christ, who, who have walked with Jesus for a long time and who have figured some things out. I think that's part of seeking the Lord's counsel because that's the body of Christ. Ultimately, what I'm saying is do what you can. Do what you can. I'm not here to tell you that it's an exact science. I, I think it is actually an inexact science. I wish I could give you a formula. If you do these three things, you'll get God's answer definitively every time. I, I, that hadn't worked in my life. I don't want to offer that as some sort of trite answer in a sermon today that ultimately won't hold water 
Monday through Saturday. I think, though, the principle here is important. I don't think we should lose sight of it, even if we don't know all the details for every occasion. The principle is, if we are men and women who are humble, we will figure out ways to live in utter dependence on God. There's a number of ways to do it, but we'll do it. Conversely, if we are prideful, even if it's religious pride, we will live in utter independence from God. It's how it works. Humility says, Lord, I don't have answers. I need your help. Pride says, I've got this figured out. We don't want to be prideful people. I, I can't give you the right formula I can tell you that your orientation should be toward humility, which will lead to dependence on an omniscient, omnipotent, all-gracious God. Verses 16 through 21. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with the Gibeonites, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors. And they, they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached there the Gibeonite cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Barath, Kiriath, and Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders of Israel. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them, the Gibeonites, by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water, for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. I actually think this is filled with humor, and I don't think we necessarily get it. Can you imagine Joshua's surprise when three days later they realize they've been duped? I'm not entirely sure this is historically accurate, but, but I get the idea that Israel is marching further and further into the promised land, and, and they get to the area of the Gibeonites, and and out comes someone who looks like the Middle Eastern equivalent of Steve Martin in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Like he's, he's kind of a, a dupe. And, and he's like, brothers! And like, hey, we've, we've got a covenant, right? And Israel's like, what the heck? What? You lied. You said you were from a distant country. You, you had worn out shoes and worn out clothing and, and worn out wineskins and, and you, worn out bread. The bread was crumbly, man. Yeah, about that. We've got a covenant. The focus of this passage, if you look carefully, isn't on the fact that the Gibeonites lied. It was wrong. It was wrong. But that's not the focus. 
the focus is on Israel keeping its covenant. That's what is really driven home here. Now, I think this is important. Remember where we are in the story. God has delivered Israel from Egypt. He's delivered them across the Red Sea. He's conquered nations east of the Jordan. He has stopped the Jordan River at flood stage that they might come across. He has beaten Jericho. He has beaten Ai. Like, it's a deal. And right after all of that, he takes the whole nation, Daniel preached on this last week, and he moves further into the middle of the promised land, and they have a worship service where there is a reiteration of the covenant. Now, do you think that all the ites who live all in close proximity to where Israel, these invaders, are having this worship service, you think they were listening to all that? Heck yeah, they were. I promise you, they know what's going on. It's a million Israelites. I mean, it's a lot of people, right? This is, this is a big event people notice. And what they hear, and what Israel hears, is that God reiterates his covenant with the Israelites, despite the fact that Israel has over and over again sinned. They have acted in an untrustworthy manner, and God has said, but I am trustworthy. I'm reiterating the covenant. God is trustworthy. Israel, honoring this covenant in chapter 9, isn't as much about their respect for the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites lied. It's not about their respect for the Gibeonites. It's about their respect for Yahweh. And let me drive this home a little bit. If God honors his covenants, and that's what happened at the last part of Joshua chapter 8, if God honors his covenants, and we are God's people, and Israel certainly believes themselves to be God's people, if God honors his covenants, and we are God's people, then we honor our covenant. That's what it means for Israel. When, when they think of themselves as an image bearer, when they, they think of themselves as, as products of a covenant, secure because of a covenant, a, a covenant that they have violated, but God continues to keep. And then, and then you ask, how do I glorify? How do I reflect God? The answer is, we honor our covenants, and, and we don't look for loopholes. Well, you you made this covenant under false pretenses. Well, so did Israel. And God honors his covenant. And so the leaders of Israel are like, we don't have any choice. We're going to honor our covenant. Let's see how we can apply this. The institution of marriage is founded on a covenant. Jesus is called the bridegroom. The church is called the bride. In scripture, that's easy to find. Jesus, the bridegroom, church is the bride. God says in this covenantal relationship, that the bridegroom will never leave or forsake his bride. Never. What shall separate us from the love of God? Height, depth, angel, principle, and all these things, we're the more than conquerors. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. He did it. 
And God says, I will never disavow the covenant that I have made because I am a covenant-keeping God. And then he creates the institution of marriage, and he creates a man who is a bridegroom and a wife who is a bride, and you make vows on your wedding day that say really severe things if you pay attention. It says things like, I promise to love, honor, and cherish until death do us part. Not until things get inconvenient. Not until I find someone who's younger. Not until we have irreconcilable differences. What, what is that? This fires me up, y'all. What is irreconcilable differences? That is an acknowledgement that you're married to a sinner. That's all it is. Like, you have selfish desires. She has selfish desires. Y'all have different selfish desires. That's what an irreconcilable difference actually is. But you also, as a Christian, have the indwelling Holy Spirit that allows you to sacrifice your desires so as to serve your spouse. Husbands, initiate that with wives. Wives, reciprocate that with husbands. And there is this mutual sacrificial relationship that glorifies God and it looks a lot like salvation because we say until death do us part and by God's empowering grace we mean it that's the deal and so if you're sitting here today as a Christian and I get that it can be hard in marriage I promise I do I don't I'm not trying to beat anybody up I'm not trying to be callous if you're sitting here as a Christian though and you're like I think I might divorce my spouse knock it off There is a way forward. God does not want you to live in a prolonged, miserable marriage. He wants to redeem your marriage by the indwelling Holy Spirit in you and in your spouse that y'all might learn to love each other. And I promise you can do it. With his help, you can do it. Don't settle for less. Marriage was never meant to make you happy. That's not the purpose. It wasn't even meant to make you kids. Happiness and children are a blessed byproduct. They are not the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage is that you would glorify this covenantal relationship by which you are saved. It is a covenantal relationship that the world desperately needs to see tangibly. Desperately needs to see it. So I get that you might not be happy. I get it. I'm not saying God wants you to be miserable. I think you honor God and a byproduct of honoring God and living as he intends, byproduct, not purpose, is that God will redeem your relationship and there will be joy to be had in that redemption. Don't settle for less. So that's our first application of this principle. Now the second one. I think this applies, this idea that God honors his covenants and we are his covenant people and therefore we should honor our covenants. I think it applies in business. I do. This isn't going to be quite as touchy. I get that sometimes in business deals you are sitting across a negotiation table from someone who is unscrupulous. I I get that sometimes people who you are negotiating with in business are not always truth tellers. I I get that. I'm not 
saying that Christians should be patsies. I'm not saying that Christians should always lay down and, and just get abused. I'm, that's not going all the way there. Here's what I am saying. I just want you to hear this. Shady does not beget shady. Meaning, if the person across the negotiation table is doing something that is shady, that does not give you authority or the right to be shady in response. Okay, that's just not how it works. The Gibeonites were shady. Israel was not shady. Not because they respected the Gibeonites, they were shady. It's because they were respectful of God, who is not shady. And so, God honors his word to us. We honor our word for him. Sometimes we won't get everything we want. But in that scenario, we will arrive at God's glory. And that matters most. So here's the question. These Gibeonites, shady, a little bit shady, kind of fun. I like them. Not going to lie. How cursed are they? The, the text is going to say they're cursed. How cursed is cursed? Verses 22 through 27. Joshua summoned them, the Gibeonites, and said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you in fact dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Look, that logic is suffocating. That is good logic. We're either going to die or, or we're going to offer ourselves as servants. But, but those are our only two options and it seemed like the only real option because death is the other one. I get it. And now behold, they go on, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to us, to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water, which is a servant position, positions, for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he, he being the Lord, should choose. The question is, how cursed are the cursed? How, how bad is this for the Gibeonites? Let's back up and ask a better question. How do you prevent cultural syncretism? How do you, how do you prevent cultural syncretism? Like this, this blending, this false religion, amalgamation of weird stuff with worship of Yahweh. How do, how do you prevent cultural syncretism? Well, you got two options. We've seen one already. Joshua chapter 1 through 8, you kill everyone. Yeah, like you offer them as objects of destruction, like you kill them all. We've talked a lot about in Joshua the judgment of God. It is both severe, but it's also deserved. I want you to remember that. It's severe and deserved. You can kill them all. Or 
This is chapter 9's offering. The few who recognize the superiority of Yahweh, and this is what's amazing here, even in their recognition, they still sin, but they're recognizing the superiority of Yahweh here. Even those who recognized, or for those who recognize the superiority of Yahweh, you make them servants of Yahweh. You put them to work in the sanctuary. Like the best way to, to get them not to be distracting, not to have this syncretistic understanding and, and lure Israel away is you let them have a first-hand seat on what God does and how he operates in the sanctuary because then they understand who God is. And look, they're called servants. And, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't seem very nice. They call themselves servants. They're like, we want to be servants of Yahweh. They call Moses God's servant. Everyone's a servant. Like if you're thinking that my relationship with Christ enables me to live as a free agent, you've bought into an American Christianity that is a false bill of goods, folks. That's just not how it works. You, you don't get to be free as a Christian. You are either a slave to your sin or you are a slave to righteousness in your pursuit and your adoration of God, but you're his servant. Like that's that's the truth. And, and by the way, if you're like, I don't want any part of that, that's not going to be any fun at all. That's where you'll have the most fun. That's the great paradox of Christianity. The great paradox of Christianity is you give your life away. And, and that is where you find the greatest life. That's, that's where joy is born by sacrifice, by service, by self-denial. Like it's not about me anymore. What what an imprisoning thought that, to think that God exists to make me happy. Come on, y'all. How, how does that make any sense? If we are finite beings, the infinite God exists to make the finite beings happy? The finite beings exist to make the infinite being happy, and in doing so, we find joy. We find purpose. We find meaning. Charles Spurgeon once said he can scarcely be thought to be a Christian except in name who lives from week to week with no more spirituality than that which enables him to go sometimes to the house of prayer. That's Spurgeon's way of saying church. That goes sometimes to church but who neither by his powers nor his gifts, nor his time, nor any other means ever does service to the Lord his God. He's so eloquent. Like, I, I love Spurgeon. If, if it's late in the game and you kind of checked out and you didn't want eloquent, here's West cutting to the chase for Spurgeon. Real Christians serve God. Real Christians serve God as a result of their salvation. Not to earn their salvation. That would be a works-based salvation. Real Christians are so enamored by the grace of God, so empowered by the Holy Spirit that comes into them by the grace of God, that they want to give their lives away. And if you think just coming to church makes you a Christian, that's like saying, I must be a car because I'm sitting in a garage. It doesn't work that way. It's just not how it works. There are plenty of 
cars in garages, but not everything in a garage is a car. Christians redeemed by the blood of Christ serve. They give their lives away and they find life in the giving away of life. You got two options. You can die by a sword like all the ites. That's the judgment of God. Or you can bow your knee and learn the joy of serving the living God who made a way for you through the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would all, myself so included, Lord, understand and embrace the paradox of salvation, that that we find our life in Christ as your servants, that, that we enjoy life most when we realize you gave your life away and we reciprocate as the bride of Christ and give our lives to you. God, I pray for Grace Bible Church. I pray for West Brazelton as one of the people in Grace Bible Church. That I would believe that and that I would live it out and that I would understand the joy of my salvation in doing so. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.